for accepting our invitation. Uh, thank you for having me, Cedric. Uh, as I, I, I think I tweeted out or something like I've known about Startup Grind for a long time. So it's actually like I'm like, I made it. Uh, <laughs> so very, uh, very happy to be here. So maybe you can start by giving us a bit of your uh, background. Who's Isaac? What do you do growing up? Sure. Great. Uh, well, so I was born in the States, so I'm kind of an immigrant and now kind of career expat uh, and uh, grew up in a small town and studied like nothing useful, basically religion and philosophy undergrad and like wanted to know about the meaning of life and, and this sort of thing. But coincidentally, these guys I met in school in the religion department of all places were doing a startup uh, in the dot-com boom, sort of 90, 98, 99, they said, do you want to come join the company? And uh, it, it was a little bit like what Ready Education does today. So sur sur uh, providing web services for colleges and universities. I was like, the, the university is not going anywhere, but this opportunity seems unique. So I joined. Uh, the company raised a bunch of money. We spent it. It didn't really go anywhere. The Nasdaq crash, the dot-com boom ended, uh, and I went back to school and finished. But I got bitten by this technology bug, and realized that maybe I could have a career in that field. wasn't sure what it would be, uh, but it turned out that way. I graduated, I traveled, I, I went a few different places, but eventually got a job. And it was as a very junior, basically product manager at a publishing company, Scholastic, mostly publishing books, but. But we did ed tech and I just kind of worked my way into product management being this job where you work with the business and the and the engineers and the and the designers to build technology products. And, and I found my way into being able to have a role in that uh, as as the coordinator and the person who kind of keeps the project moving forward. Did that in New York for a bunch of years, got married to an awesome woman who happens to be where well, she was a student then. But now she's a professor. And she took us to Singapore for her first job as a professor. So we spent six years there, got an MBA to, to take the next step in my career at INSEAD, uh, and then spent most of my time in Singapore working for Yahoo, getting the experience of working for a big technology company, learned a ton. Yahoo was getting slaughtered at the time by Facebook. And, and so it was very, a great learning experience to work for a company that's not winning anymore and seeing how hard it is to 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 stay ahead uh did some other stuff in in uh in singapore and then we were lucky i'm lucky to 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 have moved here to montreal in 2013 came here kept doing product management uh kind of introduced myself around was lucky to 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 get connected to isham and ethan at frank and oak and spent a couple of years there building out the product management function they, they didn't really have it yet got to see that crazy ride uh, of that company uh, kind of on the way up. Uh, then spent a year at Thunder, which was Flatbook at the time. So more early stage product management, same thing, really fast moving, consumer focused company. And both of those companies were backed by Real Ventures. So I got to know the people at Real. I was also a mentor in Founder Fuel, uh, rocking the swag now, uh, active at Notman House. I was mentoring startups. I was running a product tank Montreal. So I was very involved in the ecosystem. And Real Ventures, that's kind of the calling card of the firm is invest in great startups, but build out the ecosystem. So there was a lot of alignment between the way they saw the world and the way I did. And we sort of naturally came together. And uh, when I left Sonder, they basically picked up the phone and said, we're, you know, we're starting a new fund, actually two funds. 
One of them will be focused on Quebec. Seems like it might be the kind of thing for you to work on. And indeed, that's sort of how it played out. It was Sylvain and Carl and I, and, and we've worked on this fund for the last three, four years, uh, focused pre-seed, early stage acceleration in, in the Quebec ecosystem uh, via Founder Fuel, via uh, Techstars AI, which we backed, via direct investing, uh, via Front Row Ventures, which is a, a project that we incubated. And, and that kind of, that brings us to today. Uh, so hopefully that's a good summary of, uh, of, of uh, what I've been up to. Yeah, it's a pretty, uh, pretty good summary. Now, if we rewind a bit back and go back into the managing product side, uh, was it something you were targeting? How did you get into it? You know, no. And like, I didn't really know that it was a job product management. Uh, and at the time, sort of early 2000, it also didn't have the profile that it does today, where it's like, oh, you know, product manager, that's a cool job. And you can even like go do a course in product management. And it's sort of much more established in the technology ecosystem at the time. In fact, the, the title I had was producer or associate producer. So they didn't really even call it the same way. So definitely not planning it, uh, but more you know, I had this small amount of startup experience from the startup. So I had a little bit of something on my CV and, uh, and then had a friend who worked at the publishing company and, and got introduced. And they said, well, you could, you could be an associate producer, like the lowest person. And let's see if you've got what it takes. And, and it turns out there's many different ways to do product management. But one thing is if you're good at basically running meetings, taking notes, keeping track of what's going on, coordinating between lots of people, trying to keep everybody happy, taking decisions and moving things forward. So as you can see, none of this is like technical or requires this sort of just general skill set. So I had those skills. And when I got into it, I was like, hey, this is fun and I'm pretty good at it. And I get to work with incredibly creative, talented engineers and designers and marketers. Like you, And you can kind of enable all of them by creating a you know a common framework and keeping things on track. So I found that I liked it and I was pretty good at it. And once you get into like something like that, you just follow your nose and, and keep going with it. <clears throat> you mentioned a few qualities of a product manager. Uh, what should startups look for when hiring a, a project manager? Well, first to, to you know think uh, like project and product management are different, but they're often contained within the the same role especially in early stage companies so project management is like you know when is this going to be delivered and who's going to do what and kind of keeping projects on track yeah. product management is more you know how do we create value with this product what are the kpis uh you know that what do the customers want what are the key features that go in and so first of all kind of know what are your needs on the project management management side on the product management side And, uh, and, and also like, what kind of product are you building? Is it cybersecurity? You know, that probably needs some, some more specific skill sets. Is it, is it just a simple consumer app? Maybe that's a different skill set. Does it have a heavy design component? Is, is it highly technical? Is there a hardware component? And whatever your specific product challenges, that might inform what kind of person that you're looking for. Also, What do you have already already inside the company? Do you have an engineering uh, leader or someone in the engineering team that's already doing a ton of project management and keeping the sprint in line and everything is, is well organized? Well, then you don't need that out of your product manager. Or is it like everything's all over the place 
And therefore you're looking for someone to not just come in and spec features, but also create order and, and, and systems. So, so product management can be, can be many different things and you got to decide what you want it to be in your company and what are the needs uh, 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 of the company at the time. And then finally, uh, many founders really are the first product manager, almost invariably. They have the vision for the product and whoever that founding product founder is, are they ready to give away some or all of that responsibility? Because if you try to do it too soon, they're not going to actually want to give up, give it up. And then there, there may be hard for the product manager to, to do their job. So is it the right time to hand over some or all of the product ownership to someone else? So th these are a few of the, of the considerations. And and you've had those kinds of roles in, in startups, in scale-ups, and in uh, large companies. Does the role of product manager differ? There is there a difference between when you're a product manager and a startup versus a, a large company? Like for sure, as with many things. And and if you think about a real big company PM at a, you know Yahoo or Google or Facebook, uh, like. There's so many different people who work at that company now. So you don't need to do any project management. Like that's the engineering team and you don't need to do any product marketing. There's a whole product marketing department and you don't need to do any user research because there's a whole user research group. So the product manager becomes very, very narrowly focused on what are the next features? How is the product performing? And for sure, you're going to be in meetings a lot of the time and you're going to be doing PowerPoints a lot of the time and fighting for resources for your product within the organization and trying to justify this is why we need more engineers and this is why we need marketing support and all of that stuff. So you're really a big company operator and a lot of it, PMs especially, are really implicated in big company politics, which sounds like a bad thing, but really politics means, you know, what are we going to do next and and you, who gets the resources and who gets the support? So So that's life as a big company PM. And if you flip all the way to being like the first product manager at an up and coming startup, like for sure, you're working on the sprint and you're doing a little user research and you're probably, you know, doing a little marketing and you're doing bug testing and you're writing up every little story. And so you're a lot of the roles that that get fleshed out into into unique, specific roles in a big company. That's like inside of the one person who's the product manager And, and that's the, the fun of it, but the challenge, and, and both I've found are, are great. Like doing that work in a big company where you have big products that have big impact and big user bases and lots of resources behind them, that's like a fascinating challenge. But being in there, you know, uh, uh, hand in hand with your engineers, you know, doing bug testing at two in the morning to see why the site is down. Like there's a thrill in that as well. And so it's all kind of a spectrum. And I've, I've, got, I've learned a lot doing both kinds of stuff. Which one did you prefer? Did you prefer working at a, at a startup or a large company? I guess I prefer I mean, I've been drawn to the startup world. You have a little bit more. Um, the cycles are faster. Uh, you have more impact that you can directly attribute to the work that you've done. A little bit more independence. Uh, so I think overall, That's probably my sweet spot. But on the other hand, you know, I didn't necessarily work on the greatest products at these big companies. So, so I didn't have the experience of being like, hey, I'm product on Facebook Messenger and like we're killing it. You know what I mean? And so I think it's, it's very specific to the, to the opportunity. But overall, up and coming startups and particularly 
startups that, you know, kind of post seed series A startups where you have some product market fit, you have some users, and now you can start to really turn the crank and have very fast iteration cycles and improve the product quickly and see the fruits of your labor. Like that's, that's pretty fun. And there's like five executives around the table that are kind of making the decisions for the company. I, I got a kick out of that. And so you were mentioning it fast forward a few years, uh, you were at uh, Sonder, which was Flatbook back then you left and then you transitioned into VC. How did, how did that happen? Uh, well, like I said, they, they called me and, and at Sonder, it was like, like it was a great fit for a while. And then, and then it wasn't, which is, which, which has just happened. It's kind of a, a longer story than we can get into here. And so that, that kind of like ended and, uh, and I was actually, you know, I was like, well, what now do I go do a, another product management gig? And I had a couple conversations about being a, a CEO in a, in a company that, that was a little later stage. And. Uh, should I do my own thing? Uh, you know, now that I kind of have, you know, really direct experience in the startup world. So I was, I was like pondering my next options, but I mean, for like three days, because then, you know, like word gets around pretty quickly. And, and John Stokes called me up and, and said, Hey, let's have, uh, let's have coffee. And when we sat down, the opportunity he laid out, it was just like, Oh, wow. You know, sometimes, Sometimes things just feel right. And it was, and the other people in the firm that I knew and Alan and, and JS, Alex, she was there at the time, Savang, uh, uh, all these people, I was like, oh yeah, this is meant to be. And this builds on what I've been doing, but also it's something new that I really like the learning curve, you know, not that I had like mastered product management at all, because it's not anything you can master in the end, but you know, the learning curve goes down a bit. And so here was this opportunity to go back into heavy learning mode, to try on something totally new, to work with people who I'm totally aligned with in terms of the way we see the world and the giving back to the community and that sort of stuff. And, and, and VC, uh, you know, has appears to be super fun and interesting And it is like, it actually is. So, so, so that, that, that stereotype is true. You're meeting amazing people all the time, both the founders, uh, people in the ecosystem, you get, you get much bigger network. Uh, you learn about the money side of the business and, and how to raise funds. And so everything that I thought it might be, it, it actually has been. And, and, and I feel lucky for that. And looking back at it now, how did having that, Tech, that product management background help you become a better VC, a good VC? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. First of all, uh, there are great VCs who have never worked in any startup. And so it's not the case where like, if you haven't been there, you can't do it. Um, they're really just like, like, like legendary VCs who, you know, they were analysts at an investment bank and then they just became a, a VC. So it's not required. But if you've been on the front lines, whether it's in product or marketing or operations or finance, for sure you can draw on that experience because you're, you're you know, especially less so when, I mean, when you're analyzing the deals for sure, but when you're supporting the companies, you can say, oh yeah, like, uh, you know, like this is what we did for onboarding or, you know, this is how we, we approach this pricing problem. And you, you can draw on your own experience, which I think is, is relevant and helpful. 
So, so definitely comes up all the time. And, and in looking at deals too, oh, I see what the challenges would be for this based on my past experience. Now, you don't want to draw too many uh, uh, conclusions off of a small data set. There's only so many companies that you've worked for, but, but it is very useful to be able to call on that. And I think one of the things we try to do as investors is develop empathy and connection with our founders. We want to be their first call, even if there's seven investors on the cap table, we want them to call us first and trust us and, and build that relationship. So if you, if you can empathize with what they're going through at some level, that's helpful. And, you know, per, everybody does it their own way because they have their own experience. So I have a lot around product, uh, around customer value, uh, and, and the, the, the issues that would understand if you were a product manager. So, so that helps me, you know, like, especially if that's relevant for understanding what's going on. It is, I've noticed it is uh, as well, because it turns out at Precede and Accelerator and Seed, which is where I focus, the actual product is like the least important thing. The team is super important. The market is super important. Um, like, of course, you got to make a product. And if the company has a good product, their chances are better. And if the product totally sucks, it's not as good. But product can iterate very quickly and change. You can pivot and all of this stuff. And there have been cases where I, in retrospect, put too much weight on the actual product as it existed today, which in the end doesn't matter as much as you would think it is. So, so with any framework that you bring or pattern that you want to match, you got to be uh, you got to be cautious and humble that you're not like overdoing it on that thing, especially if you're if you're into product. So, what are the clues then? You're looking at products when you're investing in pre-series A. If you're mentioning that product don't don't necessarily matter as much as the team or the market, but what does matter and still matter in a product when you're looking at it? That it's for the right market. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, because if you build this beautiful product that's in the wrong market, it doesn't matter. And if you if you build like sort of a crappy product in a great market, it will probably get better and the market will carry you. Now, is the team great at building products, which is really more of an index on the team? I mean, it should show up in the product. That really matters. So, so mm -hmm. if the team you know, for example, to, to be, you know, oversimplified, oh, like there's not a lot of technical resources on the team, but they're telling you that they're going to build some technical thing. You're like, well, who's going to do that? Uh, but if the team, and I have companies in my portfolio now, and like the guys and, and gals are like really good at building products, and they've had to pivot the product a couple of times because they had the wrong angle and you got to do it this way and you got to do it that way. And that like, that's what they've done because they're very good at building products and they're good at adjusting and moving quickly. So, so there you go. Like it, it didn't matter that their product wasn't the right product. I mean, we'll see on some of these companies, but it matters. Are they, are they really good? And for these people, you know, I have a company that's in NLP uh, uh, and, 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 you know, working with, uh, with large data sets, uh, to, to make these, um, you know, systems be able to understand people. Well, that's a good market. There's a lot happening in that market. So if you have the wrong spin on it now, you probably have the right spin on it uh, 
soon if you're really good. And I will just say this is like very relevant to pre-seed and seed investing. If you come to a Series B startup and their product is still wretched, like that's probably more of a warning sign Mm -hmm. because they've had more time. But here, the companies that we invest in have not had a lot of time. And and you got to look at the team and say, is this team highly credible to build great stuff? And if so, that should give you a lot of confidence, even if the product like doesn't exist or it's just getting started or it's kind of ugly, et cetera. That's great. Before transitioning more into the VC side of things, uh, just one last question, maybe related to product management. Do you find yourself now using any tools, concepts, frameworks that you've learned or you've applied as a product manager and saying, oh, well, I can also use that as a VC now? Uh, Yes. I mean, I think like product managers have to think about what what else is out there on the market and do we have some kind of differentiated offering that would make people want to use our product. Can't be overly obsessed with the competition. You got to build what you want to build. But if you're not like cognizant of the who you're competing against, whether that's like other startups or legacy companies, or you're often just competing against Excel spreadsheets or whatever, like if you are aware of that as a product manager, you will probably make better decisions about what features to build and how to create value for your customer. And for VCs, it's, I would say, even more important to really be aware of the competitive landscape for these companies because it's like, cool, that sounds like an awesome plan, but like, do a lot of people already do that? Are you three years late to the market? Okay, that's all right. You're three years late to the market, but do you have a different spin on the market that's going to allow you to, to intervene in some way? So I think that, that that awareness, I'd say it's more dialed up in uh, in in venture capital, but cer- certainly something uh, that we thought about uh, a lot as that we that I thought a lot about as product management. And the other thing is customer value. You know, uh, uh, companies pitch us their big vision, and this is how we're going to take over the world. And like the market is ten billion, and like it's so exciting, and that's great. And we do want to hear that, but we also want to know what is the ROI for the customer, and this is especially for like B2B products, but for everyone right now, like what value does your product create for the customer? And we really want to understand that and, and, and believe that you know, not just that you have a cool the value proposition um, to, your, to your end user. And that's very much product management thinking that you can bring in to the VC process, I've found. Now, you don't have to be a product manager to ask those questions, but but I, I think it helped. Yeah, it definitely helps. <clears throat> well, now you've been investing and mentoring startups uh, for a few years. Uh, in Montreal, you were mentioning you're investing in Quebec-based companies. How have you seen the scene? How have you seen uh, the, 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 the ecosystem evolve in the last few years? Uh, yes, uh, good, good question. So like everything is always evolving and changing. Uh, so there's no, there's no difference here. And three, four years is a long time in, in any kind of life cycle. And the startup community moves very, very quickly. So 
So there is a lot of change, but I would call it, you know, like gradual year by year, incremental, significantly incremental changes, right? So, so, and like, because we're in a growth industry, like more of everything. So if you think about acceleration, uh, you know, when I started, it's like founder fuel and I don't know what other like big equity taking, uh, you know, uh, programs there were. And I think D3 and Suntech were kind of getting off the ground as, as, as the next layer founders Institute were here. I apologize that who, who I'm forgetting. I think CDL was just going and now it's like, well, CDL is in full swing in Montreal with two sessions. Centec is way bigger. D3 is much more established. There's like three or four more programs like that. Uh, Next AI has launched doing 50 companies and giving money out. EcoFuel has become, you know, like, like more well-funded. So just at the acceleration level, uh, we backed Techstars AI. So now there's a, a Techstars program in Montreal. Real got involved with Techstars in Toronto. There's two tech stars in Toronto now, one of, one of them that we were involved in. So like just at that acceleration tier, there's so much, so much more going on. And then if you look at the, well, the university tier, well, we backed Front Row Ventures. So now Front Row Ventures exist and you've got, you know, like, you know, five, six companies a year getting backed by that program. And then at the, at the pre-seed level, uh, you know, Panache was just, I think had just started uh, so then we have the Orbit Fund, uh, Innovexport, Echo Fuel. You have like uh, like uh, Super Angels coming in, like Box One Ventures, Josh Felker, uh, Jason Van Gaal, Zero MC, uh, Francois Arbour. Like and, and you know, so all of this is happening. Like every, every year, a, a new fund, a new program, uh, uh, a new investor who comes in, a, an exit that that triggers uh, that triggers more the the growth of of Shopify in Montreal and that kind of bringing in more talent and, and producing some angel investors. So, so everything, uh, companies getting to series B, series C. Now what we need more of in Montreal is the, is the truly kind of like ecosystem changing events. I guess the biggest one here would be Lightspeed kind of going public and, and, and creating a lot of liquidity there, but, but more of that is needed to really, kind of vault the uh, vault the ecosystem forward but but certainly evolution and growth at every level of the ecosystem and at the same time increasing level of sophistication amongst the entrepreneurs you know because like there's more of these programs and there's more stuff online and there's more awareness and and there's more acceptance of the startup path and so now, you know, like when companies come to us at even at Front Row Ventures, it's like they've already got their fundraising deck and their plan and they've already got 200K of investment. And like, you know what I mean? And when they come to us at Founder Fuel, if you look back at the Founder Fuel companies we backed in 2011, 2012, before I was there, I mean, like it was like idea stage companies, and, sort of. And, and now, I mean, we'll still do an idea stage company. We did Waverly and that's going well. But now we're doing companies where it's like like a quote machine. Yeah, we've got 10k of revenue and and you know 200 customers, and we're going to do the accelerator. And you're like, wow, like that's pretty good. So 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 increasing level of maturity, increasing sophistication. Uh, so when I give talks now, people are like, yeah, I know that. Like, what else? You know, what else you got? 
and and I think that's great. And that's the work of of everybody. That's the government. That's the universities. That's private capital. That's the pension funds. That's the VCs. That's Montreal International. That's all the you know, the law firms and the accounting firms with their 15K sponsorship and 20K sponsorship, like, like this kind of stuff happens through collective action of lots of individuals. And, uh, and it's great to see now everybody, every other ecosystem is rolling in the same way, right? So, so even though we're getting stronger, Toronto's getting stronger and Vancouver's getting stronger and, you know, Shenzhen is getting stronger. And, and, and so, you know, our place uh, is dictated by that kind of global competition, but but every year a little bit better, a little higher, a little, little faster, a little taller has been my experience. I think you've mentioned the fundraising <clears throat> and we're almost a year into the pandemic now. Uh, how has that uh, dynamic, that flow of, of startups raising funds changed since the pandemic started? Uh, yeah, totally top of mind still. Uh, The first three months, so investment uh, does does not love super in uncertainty in a way, right? Like when things are massively uncertain, it's just people tend to pull back. So I think there was a few months, at least for us as as investors, where we pulled back, and and certainly the the, the LPs, there's a lot of uncertainty there. But pretty soon, you know, you realized, okay, like twenty percent of the companies are really badly impacted. So you got to do damage control. 20% of the companies are like, could not be happier because they're in e-commerce or last mile delivery or remote work. 60% in the middle, pretty much going to go on with their enterprise SaaS or their this or that if they're not affected by retail or travel. And so once you realize that, you know, the world is not going to end. And in fact, crazily, like the stock market is going to keep going up. Then it was kind of back to business. And, and in fact, the, comp the world that we're in feeds off of disruption and, and uncertainty. So once the uncertainty went down from like red levels to yellow, you go, oh, wow. You know, like startups thrive when things change. And so all of this economic and cultural and social change, I mean, think about remote work and think about distance learning and think about you know, all of the things that think about the, the doubling of the e-commerce business globally. These are all massive opportunities. A lot of these trends were already happening, but like we're really accelerating. So then it's not only back to business, but actually in many ways, like there's never been a more exciting time for people to start companies, uh, for investors to invest in these companies. And The the uh, the bigger you are, the more you're impacted. So the big legacy players who have big, you know, like big, uh, uh, big exposure, big revenue, big talent base, like they're going to fire people if they're badly affected. Well, like those people are going to go start companies. You know what I mean? So there's there there's all this talent coming into the market. So it's turned out to be kind of a, a, a pretty good thing for the startup and the technology driven world because we're investing in the future. and. Uh, the friction associated with fundraising, which is like the most mundane kind of friction, like how do I get across town to pitch the other person because it should be done in person and now I got to fly to the valley to pitch the fancy VCs in the valley. But like that's kind of gone away. Like you literally can't even cross the border, but everybody's still writing checks. 
So now it's all on Zoom. You can be much uh, more agile with your fundraising. You, the 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 investor in the in New York or Boston or who wouldn't get on a plane and probably wouldn't meet you. They go, oh yeah, I'll take a pitch from the Montreal company. Why not? It's just another Zoom call. So I think it's created a lot more fluidity in funding. I think it's net net been like pretty good for startup practitioners, provided that they weren't in some like heavily affected industry that's really uh, that's really hurting. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like today. And, and I don't see, you know, the economy is very, very diverse, but the part of the economy that we're in, which is about change, which is about automation, which is about, you know, injecting more technology into all parts of, of, of society, this is probably pretty good for that. So that's, that's what I've been seeing. So with the pandemic now, maybe some people who have been laid off or lost their jobs are looking into, like you're saying, new opportunities and might be looking into entrepreneurship and launching their their company now. Uh, what can you tell them to quickly evaluate when they're looking for investments? Should I go see a uh, should I go see a VC? Is my company VC backable or not? Okay, great. I, I mean, first of all, the first thing I'll say to them is like, you should start a company now. It's never been a better time. And it, and it's really true. Like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of capital out there, uh, at seeking great entrepreneurs. Uh, and so if you're, if you have the risk profile where you can go start a company and that's the key thing, not everybody has it, but if you can take that risk, which means not getting paid a lot right away And, you know, not worrying, take the social risk that everyone's like, oh, like, don't you have a real job? Like, as long as you're, as you're willing to be an entrepreneur and take that risk, there's a ton of opportunity out there. When is the right time to go? Well, the second thing I'll say is like, what kind of company do you want to build? Because, I mean, this is kind of well known, but I'll, I'll say it, not every company should raise venture capital. Like you have to have the capability to get to $100 million in revenue or more, not the, the guarantee, but the possibility. And, and you have to have the personal ambition and desire to build that really big company, which will take you a long time. And it might not work. In fact, it probably won't. So, so you got to really understand what is this deal I'm getting into of, of trying to build a, a venture scale company. Because we have no ambivalence. Like we only want venture scale companies. So you have to really understand what we're looking for and make sure you're looking for the same thing. And then, well, it's not one size fits all. Like if you have a VC backable company, a big idea, and you have a VC backable team, you can come in pretty early. Uh, it kind of depends on what makes sense for you uh, and how long you're willing to run without external funding. And by the way, do you have other access to capital? Like, do you have family money? Like, do you have friends? Like, can you run, like, how capital thirsty is your business? Like some people build, you know, software companies and like, they might never need to raise capital or not for a long time. Other people like, you know, we just invested in a quantum computing company. Like they called us right away because you don't really like, like there's no revenue coming from the quantum hardware company. Like it's going to take years. So So every company has different capital needs and, and every company can, is like a different how far you can push it before you take outside capital, if in, indeed outside capital uh, is, is what's right for you. So, so a lot of considerations, not one size fits all. 
I would say the further you can push it without taking on investment, the happier you will be. You will get a better valuation. You will have a better idea of what you're trying to do. And you will be more ready to put that capital to good use because you'll have answered some questions about the market and what you're trying to do. So, so if you can wait, you know, like wait and put more proof in the business and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but, you know, we have people who, who raise from us at the idea stage or close to it. Sometimes that's exactly the right thing to do. And the other thing to consider is, will they give me money? Like if, if you already sold your company once and have a track record and are like a proven commodity, that door opens like way earlier and way wider. And it's like, so oh, I've never done this before, but like, I've got a really good idea. The person is, you know, the VC is more likely to say, okay, but like, you know, it'd be nice to see a, a prototype or a product. Uh, so, so everybody's in a different situation and we see a lot of, you know, we do a lot of investing in repeat founders now who we've worked with already. I mean, that's normal. Like we've been around for almost 15 years. And if that's you, sure. Like, why not? Like go early. Uh, but it's uh, so I, I know I didn't like directly answer the question, but there's a lot of considerations. And, and hopefully, you know, that gives a little bit of, uh, of structure to it for people. And you're investing a lot in pre-series A startups now. And Like you were mentioning, a lot of sometimes entrepreneurs have sold different companies before, but sometimes it's the first time they're also uh, raising around. Any any advice, let's say, if you can give a top three advice or feedback that you find yourself giving a lot to these entrepreneurs who are uh, raising their uh, their first round ever? Sure. Um, first thing I want to say is while VCs tend to, like, tend to be more favorable to repeat founders. Um, anybody can build a great company. And in fact, many of the great companies were built by first-time founders. So if you're like listening to this, you're like, well, I haven't done it before. Like you can do it. And, and if you look at a company like, like Sonder where I worked and is now one of the most valuable companies in our portfolio, I mean, like they were, They were 22, 23 when they started it. And sometimes it's better to not know anything because if you, you know, like the, the market they entered, the, the short-term rental market, this Francis and Lucas, like you probably shouldn't enter that market. There's no competitive advantage. Like anybody can rent an apartment, but like, they're like, but yeah, but we could do it better. And they were totally right. So, so anybody can do this and it's not like you need a, you know, permission or you need certain qualifications. So I just want to make that uh, clear. So a couple people, pieces of advice for, for raising money. First, run a process. Uh, if you, you know, what you're doing is you're selling, uh, you're, you're auctioning off equity in your company, whether you do a convertible note or a safe or a kiss or whatever, or a, a price round, you are selling equity in your company. And The more people who are bidding within a short period of time, the more likely that you're going to get at least one bid. Because by the way, most people who try to raise money, they don't even get a single bid. A bid is like a term sheet. Like nobody even offers them money. So the best chance to get like one bid, if not multiple bids, or the bids from the best person, or the bids with the highest price, run a process and create a simulated auction. So, so think about how they sell expensive paintings. They get everybody in the room at the same time and said, who wants the painting? You want that vibe 
for your fundraising process, but you're not allowed to bring our, it's not even possible to bring all the investors in the room, but you want to feel that. And if you're wondering if that works, think about Y Combinator. They're basically running an auction for the equity. And they're like, hey, if you don't fund this, someone else is going to do it. And it works really well for them. So run a process where you compress all of the pitches and presentations into like two or three weeks. And then when they say, who else are you talking to? You go, well, I actually have 10 other pitches this week. And we're at the second and third meeting with these people. And and the the vibe is like, if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it. So run a process. The process will not guarantee you funding but it will increase your chances of getting it. Run a process. Um, as I said, the more you do in advance of the fundraising process, the easier your life will be. If you show up with just a sketch and a pitch and you haven't built anything, so, you know, like you, you, better, you better have a great reputation and a great story if you show up with a product and you're in market and you've got traction. So like the more proof you can put around the business, whether that's product, whether that's customers, whether that's market insights, like the more work you do ahead of time, the better. And um, uh, and the third thing is remember, and this is a bit counter to the thing I just said, we're not funding your traction, we're not funding your 5K of revenue or your two or three happy customers. Like we're funding the future. We're funding what you might do in five to seven years. So while it, like, it's great to have proof and you should use that proof, like, hey, look, I've got a happy customer. Um, you have to have a great narrative or story about the future that's going to happen. And that's what we're going to fund. And if you're a great storyteller, um, you're in luck because like that really matters for fundraising. And so just like let it flow. If you're not a great storyteller, like you're a great engineer and you're great at building the products, but you don't like pitching to these VCs, well, like get better at it, apply yourself, learn the basic techniques is not rocket science. You just got to learn like this is the way it goes and embrace it and come up with a story or a narrative about your company uh, that... um, that is compelling to people. And that says like, we are going to build a world changing company. And that's what people are investing in. Perfect. I see time is running out. I just opened the Q and a section. So if you click on the, in in the chat section, there's a sub tab called Q and a. So I invite you to start asking your questions for Isaac. Um, Maybe Isaac, before going into that, the, the, the questions from the audience, uh, on the outside, VCs are mainly known as investors, right? Uh, but they do much more than that, and we haven't really touched that um, yet. But what happens usually after a VC in, invests and commits in a startup? What role does does he have in the company? Oh, great. Thank you for asking that because I think it is a, a bit murky. So first of all, uh, like, is the investor part of a syndicate? where there's lots of investors around the table or is the investor kind of like the lead investor who sits on the board and is like the number one person for the company? That's the big question. If you're like the lead investor and you take a board seat, then you really are like almost like a fifth executive. You're like, you're really there with them and, and obviously not on the executive team, but you're very, very involved and working with the company super closely. If you're part of a syndicate, it's more likely that like there's many voices and you do this, but she does that and that sort of thing. Um, but regardless, whether you're the lead or you're part of a syndicate, 
your main thing is strategic advice. Like now everybody does it differently, but like, like founders, CEOs, executives, like it's their job to build the product, figure out what the market is, like all the details we can help. But like the more high level the problem is, the easier it is for us to engage on the more granular, like, do you think we should use like this piece of software or that piece of software? I was like, I don't know, like, you know, that's your job. So high level strategic advice, um, especially around fundraising. That's the one thing where we are the experts. It's all we think about is how to fund companies and how to get them refunded. So we do a lot of like, like we're really big at the end of the cycle. Okay, now it's time to go raise more money. Okay, let's spend a lot of time together. Let's work on the deck and who are we going to intro you to and all of that stuff. Um, and then from there, it's also really depends what does the company need and what is the partner good at? You know, like some partners, uh, and I, I mean investors, it have to be the title partner, crazy corporate network where they know like tons of potential customers. So then it's like, I'm going to make some intros for you and get you some customers. Someone else is like really good at product management. Like, I don't know if I'm really good at product management, but I like to do it. So I'll be like, hey, let's do a session on the product roadmap. I can help you on that, especially because you don't have a product manager right now. So everybody has a little bit of a different skill set. And so they try to bring, you know, someone who had a ton of HR experience in their past life, like they're going to help more with that. So it's a lot about what the, the partner is good at, the investor is good at. And then what does the company need? Like you got to be able to step in and help the company on what they're asking for and be versatile. And VCs, a lot of them are really generous. Like, so, okay, you need help on that. You want me to interview a couple of your potential executives because you want a, a second a second look? Good. I'm there for you. You know what I mean? Like you, you want me to look at your pricing stuff? Okay. Like I'll give you some feedback. Uh, so whatever we need. And I think this is kind of a funny thing about, about venture capital. The better the company, which is not say better intrinsically, but the better they're doing, the, the less they need us. And the more the company is having a hard time, the more they're going to call us because then it's like, well, what do I do? And this isn't working. So we spend much more time working on the companies that are going to deliver like less of the returns because like the really the companies who have nailed it they're they're like yeah i'll keep you posted but i just got my series a term sheet so you know what i mean like it's going pretty good and and that's as it should be and we make our like we make our money on the good ones but we make our reputation on the ones in the middle and down below because those are the ones where we can actually add value and forget about the ones that are in the middle the companies that are failing which happens and you help them deal with that and shut down the company or, you know, downsize or like all the really hard, ugly stuff when it doesn't go right. Like that's when you can create a, a lot of value. You're not going to create financial value for your fund, but you're going to create value for that, that company, that team. And you will create value for your firm in the long run because people will know yeah, when when the shit hit the fan, they were totally there for us, even though they knew they weren't going to make any money off of it. And so you make your reputation in that way. And then that person comes back to you and you do another company with them or they refer you another company. So and you just got to put in the work uh, and do whatever is needed and be part of the, the team in, in a relevant way. And what's the percentage of time you find yourself between sourcing new deals and supporting your your portfolio startups 
Yeah, it's uh, when a fund is like really live, uh, it's about 30, 30, 30 or 33, 33, 33 between uh, doing new deals and looking at new opportunities, supporting the portfolio and then ecosystem and networking and, and let's call it like the long game of VC because what, you know, venture capital thrives off of weak ties. Like you got to know a lot of people a little bit. And if you know them a little bit, they'll send you opportunities and, and they'll help you out. And so you're constantly building up those weak ties, meeting other VCs, meeting, you know, meeting corporates, meeting, meeting other founders. And so it's a mix of those three things. Maybe at the start of a fund, it would be heavier on new deals. At the end of a fund, like now we're at the end of the funds that we raised in, in 2017, it's like very low on new deals and more on portfolio and ecosystem. And then once every few years, throw in your own fundraising cycle because like the money does not, you know, grow on trees like it, it, it grows inside of pension funds and family offices and the, and the, and the bank accounts of, of high net worth people. And so every couple of years, you got in the same way that startups run, kind of like stop the presses for a bit and go out and run a fundraising process and, and put more money into the firm so you can invest it. Perfect. Seems to be maybe some problems with the Q and A section, so well, I, I invite. I see, I see a few. Uh, yeah, well, I invite uh, people just asking in the general uh, section. Uh, did you ever have to pull out from an investment after committing or investing? Um, I have. Uh, it doesn't happen often, but I did go through. So this question is: Have you ever had to pull out of an investment after committing? It did happen. We committed to an investment. Uh, and I would say it's not so much that we didn't know every, like, it's not like new things came to light exactly, but to some degree, we learned a little bit more about how the company was structured and internally kind of like realized that the company was not structured in a way where we would like feel comfortable. And this is sort of like who owned the shares and, and, and that sort of thing and had to back out of, of a commitment. And, um, and it was really gutting and a, and a failure for certainly on my part, because if you get to a commitment, you don't want to back out of it. It's kind of like your word is your bond in, in life, but certainly in venture capital. And, and that was, uh, that was challenging. So we really do try to avoid that, but it does happen. Uh, and, and often at, And sometimes it's because the startup didn't tell us something that they should have told us. Uh, but sometimes it's that we didn't do all of the digging that we, that we should have done. I will say it happened a lot in March and April of last year, not so much from us, but I was, uh, I was a little bit surprised to see how quickly a term sheet can evaporate in an economic crisis. And we had some companies that really got the plug pulled on them Uh, and so it does happen, especially in times of, of crisis. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that you don't, um, that you don't want to have happen. Is it because of the industry that they're going for attacking or? Yeah, I think it's, you know, like I said, investment uh, does not love heavy duty crisis and it was a heavy duty crisis. Like maybe the world's going to end kind of thing, you know, and Uh, and, and perhaps, yeah, about the industry as well, but more like, like 
the world did change very quickly. So it's not like the people weren't making it up and it was just the, the bad timing of it, but, but definitely saw some, some term sheets get pulled. Um, I see another question that's in the chat and I would just say, you know, if you, uh, this is for Joseph, um, uh, like a couple of comments about the, the question is like, well, what if we could generate some real revenue, but maybe not get to a hundred million, obviously more details would be required to really answer it. But, um, there's venture investors who seek, you know, returns, but not the crazy billion dollar returns. Or the, and there's a, there's sort of a growing group of investors who like to back, uh, you know, basically profitable or quasi profitable companies that that have a, a bright future, but not a billion dollar future. So you can look there. Private equity also is basically that defines private equity if you're if you're if you're profitable. Um, angel investors are much more varied. Uh, and some of them are not seeking, many of them are not speak, seeking billion dollar companies. Um, banks uh, do lend money to high risk uh, projects so you can raise debt. And especially in Quebec and Canada, there's a significant amount of non-dilutive financing that you can access. So there's a lot of other sources of capital. And, uh, and that, that's my answer there. Perfect. And there's uh, one last question in the Q&A section. Seems to be working now. So asking about entering the VC space in a non-investing role, but in operations. Uh, there is. Uh, certainly in the accelerator world, that's the most operational aspect of VC because there's a program and there's speakers and there's and all st stuff going on. And that's whether it's like a founder fuel or a next AI or a Centec or, or something like that. So at the accelerator stage, there's a lot of operational stuff large firms or the larger the firm, the more they have operational work, they have marketing, they have platform, they often do services for their companies. So there's stuff going on there. Um, those are the two things I would say, um, rolling up your sleeves and helping startups in particular, probably less. That has to be a very big firm that has like true platform services or it has to be a private equity investor that likes to get heavily involved. VCs do not like to get that heavily involved in the company. Uh, but, but, but there is a lot of operational stuff going on in, in VC, especially accelerator or, or larger firms. Um, to, and I see a, a question from Jean-Philippe. Uh, uh, does investing in complex deep tech uh, patent-based initiatives differ? For, yes, it does for sure. I've done a lot about, almost maybe 30, 40% of my investments are in deep tech or, or IP focused companies. Uh, uh, every company is different, but often higher uh, capital needs, uh, often a slower path to revenue um, and a longer cycle to kind of get in market. Uh, more important, what is the product, right? Because if you, you know, it's like, we're building this whole company around this set of patents or this unique technology. Well, now I kind of care about this set of patents or unique technology because you're saying like that is the, the key to your business. So a different ways of, of analyzing the company and product is probably more important for these companies and, um, and a different set of follow-on funders who specialize in funding these companies. Um, a deeper pockets of uh, non-dilutive and university funding for these kind of companies. So almost everything about them is a little bit different from the way they're financed 
to the way they they generate revenue, et cetera. And yet at the same time, build a big world-changing business. You know what I mean? Whether your secret sauce is crazy IP or awesome piece of software or a better business model, like the, the end goal is the same and the the need to move 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 fast you know execute well and, and and all of this stuff so like some of this stuff it's just it's the same startup game but some of it is a bit different perfect and we have a question on facebook um, is it a good idea to apply as ict to build a startup in montreal adapting our overseas successful model um I'm hard to say without knowing a little bit more about the model. I will say um, the other way works great. Like I spent six, six, seven years in Singapore and Southeast Asia. And like, I mean, people have made a fortune just taking something that worked in, in North America and just like bringing it to Asia and the developing countries and rocket internet has built like a kajillion dollar Uh, business, just copying stuff that works here, bringing stuff from other markets into here. Sure, potentially, like it kind of depends, like, why is it not here already? Why did it work in that other market? And, uh, and, you know, is now the time for this thing? Uh, so that I'll make that general comment. And otherwise, it would depend a little bit. I, we definitely see that less often. I will say that it's not often where it's like, oh, you know, we've got this thing from Indonesia and we think it's going to be like big in Montreal. But on the other hand, anything's possible. And increasingly crazy stuff is happening in China in particular that does not exist here. I mean, like TikTok was kind of basically a Chinese product before it became a, a US product. So I think we'll probably see more of that. And, and live scale our company, I mean, video shopping, I was like huge in China. And still, I don't think anyone on this call has probably been doing a lot of video shopping, but it's going to come, right? So sometimes things do move in the in the other direction. Perfect. We have one last question from Jack. Uh, what's your take on competitors and what are some examples of good ways to defend against large competitors? Example, Google. Uh, so I do think it's really important to be aware of the competitive landscape. How are you different? Like, how are you going to carve your own space in the market? However, then you just got to go do it, right? Like you don't control that much of what they're doing. And the thing you do control is what you're doing. So I think you should have a healthy awareness, but like, Not that much because like, you know, what are you going to do? Like you've picked your direction, they've picked theirs. And, and I, I would say um, overall people often spend too much time thinking about the competition, especially the whole, you know, what if Amazon and, and, uh, and, and Google do this. So, so you should have an answer for that question. You should understand how you stand out, but, but don't spend too much time thinking about the competition. Like, um, The great thing about startups is um, it's very simple in the end. Create value for your customer and like stay close to what they need and things will, things will happen. Like they are the boss. Like if you create value for customers, good things will happen. It doesn't like she could create value for them too over there. That's fine. If you create value for customers, good things will happen. And it's a hard thing to do. 
So create value for customers, be aware of what else is going on, but just kind of let them be your guide. Perfect. Thank you, Isaac. One last question before letting you go. Uh, what's what's happening? What's coming for Real Ventures and uh, your startups in the coming months? If you have something to share. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, the the startups are all going to be unicorns. Uh, <laughs> uh, but no, we haven't like really. Uh, I mean, of course, like we've made more than two hundred investments. So some incredible companies in the in the portfolio, and it's for me just a joy to watch them and participate a little bit in them maturing. You know, like not all of them are going to hit it big, but some are going to be absolutely world changing and already are. So lots of action there. And we're just like happy to be along for the ride as these companies mature. And then uh, we're going to go raise some more money. And uh, and so you'll you know, you'll hear more about this in the coming months. But uh, but we love what we do. And and I do think we have a kind of a unique uh, place in the in the ecosystem in, in Quebec, in Canada. And we want to keep going. Uh, so, so we'll be out there kind of re refilling the, the accounts as it were, so we can keep, uh, keep backing, uh, more great founders. Great. Thank you, Isaac. This, uh, uh yeah. Thank you to you. And I just want to say thank you for everyone who like showed up here. And, uh, if you want to connect with us, Isaac at realventures.com, uh, at son of Sarah on Twitter, whatever I am on LinkedIn. Uh, and you know, we're like, we're always, uh, looking to meet, uh, new founders, people in the ecosystem, other investors and stuff. So, so don't hesitate to reach out and, uh, and thanks for coming.